This is Communio Sanctorum, the history of the Christian Church, Season 2. This is Part 2 in our follow-up series on the first centuries in church history. We're concentrating on the persecution that Jesus' followers endured. In Part 1, we examine the social and civic reasons for persecution in the Roman Empire. The suspicion of nefarious intent by Christians, fueled by their withdrawal from society due to its tacit connection to paganism, morphed into a suspicion of covert actions that Jesus' followers were taking to subvert society. Why were those Christians so secretive if they weren't in fact doing something wrong? And if the rumors were true, well, Christians were doing odd things, like pretending that slaves had the same dignity as freemen, that women and children were to be honored as equal to men, and they were rescuing exposed infants. Why, if they kept all that up, and more joined their cause, what was to become of the world? It would look very different from the one that had been. Another concern was the reaction of the gods. What would they do if the Christians had their way and everyone came to faith in a single deity? Well, those gods and goddesses, responsible as they were for things like the weather and fertility, might throw one of their classic hissy fits and call up a drought, or a storm, or a war. All of this helps explain the first official wave of persecution at Roman hands. In AD 64, during Nero's reign, fire leveled whole neighborhoods in Rome. This was neither the first nor the last fire to devastate the city, but it was one of the most severe. For days it raged, leaving a large part of the heart of Rome in ash. A rumor pointed the finger at Nero as the cause of the fire. It was well known that he planned a grand remodeling of the city, what matter if his plans were hindered by several thousand homes? Seeing the fiction that as emperor he could do as he pleased began to crumble in the face of a quickly rising public rage, Nero searched for a scapegoat. He found a ready one in a group that was already under suspicion. Convenient that they held some belief in the end of the world by fire. Large numbers of Christians were arrested, and then crucifixions began. When that got boring, they were sewn inside the skins of cattle and torn apart by vicious dogs. Women were tied to bulls and dragged to death. One report says that at night, Nero tied Christians to stakes in his garden, doused them with pitch, then lit them ablaze while he rode among them in his chariot. Most likely, it's during this persecution that the apostles Peter and Paul were martyred in Rome. This first wave of official persecution was uncommon for the first and second centuries, but it did presage what was to come later. For long periods, Christians enjoyed a measure of peace, but they knew that persecution could break out at any moment. All it took was some influential person taking umbrage, and the arrests started up again, because being a Christian was technically illegal. Things remained relatively quiet until the early 2nd century. Then a question began to rise over whether or not Rome ought to take a firmer hand in dealing with the Christians. After all, no one could ignore the fact that they were growing in numbers. Especially concerning was the number of soldiers converting to the new faith. What effect would their religion have on their fitness to serve in the legions? As I shared in Season 1, in AD 112, Pliny 
the governor of Asia Minor wrote his friend, the Emperor Trajan, seeking advice on how to deal with the followers of Christ. He was sure that Christians were guilty of something. He just wasn't sure what. He put no stock whatever in the wild rumors that they were incestuous or cannibals. He wrote, I don't know just what to do with the Christians, for I have never been present at one of their trials. Is just being a Christian enough to punish, or must something bad actually to have been done? What I have done, in the case of those that admitted they were Christians, was to have them sent to Rome if they were citizens, and if not, to have them killed. I was sure that they deserved to be punished because they were so stubborn." Unquote. Now, what stubbornness did Pliny mean? How did these early Christians exhibit such stubbornness? What was it that they were being required to do that they couldn't? Well, that arose from their failure to laud the emperor's genius, as it was called at that time. The main cause of Rome's persecution of Jesus' followers came about from the tradition of emperor worship. It rose gradually because the practice of emperor worship rose gradually until it attained a central place in the life of the empire. The roots of emperor worship lay in how Romans viewed the benefit of their hegemony. When and where they took over, a mostly impartial justice prevailed. People were freed from the caprice of fickle tyrants. Roads were cleared of bandits, the seas of pirates. A superior superiority came to most regions. This came to be called the Pax Romana, the Roman peace but it was a peace enforced by a very sharp and deadly sword. Now, most regions held a profound gratitude to Rome for disposing of their previous rulers and replacing them with, if not outright benevolent governors, at least their avarice was restrained. Because they already believed in a host of deities, it was easy to make one more, Roma, the goddess of Rome. By the second century BC, there were dozens of temples in Asia Minor to her. But humans like symbols, something that they can see. So it wasn't long before the spirit of Rome was regarded as imbuing the empire's leader, the emperor. He became Rome. The first temple to be built to the godhead of the emperor was built in 29 BC at Pergamum in Asia Minor. At first, Roman emperors hesitated at accepting this reverence. In the mid-first century, Claudius refused to allow temples to be erected to him because of the ostentatiousness that they suggested. But the idea grew and became attractive to later emperors. The logic was that the empire needed something to unite its far-flung provinces in a single uniform practice, a kind of pledge of allegiance. Since nothing has the potential to unite like a common religion, Caesar worship seemed a ready tool to forge loyalty. There was just no chance that any of the disparate religions of the various regions of the empire would be accepted by all, so why not rally under the one thing they all did embrace, the political yoke of Rome? So, emperor worship became a centerpiece of imperial policy. It was officially organized in every province. Everywhere, temples to the emperor began to appear. But, if loyalty to Rome was announced by worshipping the emperor, what did a refusal to worship him mean? Well, logic seemed to leave a single answer. That was treason. And so Christians, who refused to offer a pinch of incense while saying Caesar and Lord, were branded as dangerous traitors. 
subversives whose presence couldn't just be overlooked, for surely the gods were watching and required those who defied them to be punished. During the reign of the Emperor Decius in the mid-3rd century, Caesar worship was made universal and compulsory for everyone in the empire, with the single exception of the Jews. On a set day each year, everyone had to come to the temple of Caesar, burn a pinch of incense while saying Caesar is Lord. He was then given what was called a labelli, a certificate to guarantee that he'd taken the oath and sworn by the emperor's genius. He could then go and worship any god he liked, so long as the worship didn't affect public decency and order. Caesar worship was mainly a political loyalty test, a, a way to register someone as a good citizen, at least as Rome defined it. But of course, it proved nothing about a person's real loyalty. Christians who couldn't participate in Caesar worship were, in fact, often better citizens than those that took the oath because their holy writings enjoined them to pray for those in authority. Roman coins from that time have text given in adulation by Romans to the emperor that's remarkably similar to the praise that Christians offered Christ. These coins say things like, Hail, Lord of the earth, invincible, power, glory, honor, blessed, great, worthy art thou to inherit the kingdom. Now, that sounds an awful lot like the praise that's directed to Jesus in the book of Revelation. The worship of Christ and Caesar butted heads. No pious Christian would ever say Caesar is Lord. Jesus alone is Lord. But to most Romans, Christians seemed stupidly intolerant. The thought was, look, just go along to get along. For goodness sakes, if there really is only one God, as you Christians claim, then what harm is there in burning a pinch of incense and mouthing empty words? It'll at least remove the suspicious and hostile eye of Rome from you. While an eminently practical idea to many Romans, it was unthinkable to the Christians. Although some did, in fact, use this as justification for obtaining a labelli. But most Christians saw it more like this. Saying that Caesar is Lord was spiritual adultery. It was cheating on Jesus. Burning incense and taking the oath would be like cheating on your spouse and justifying it by saying that there was no love involved, it was just sex. Yeah, that dog's just not going to hunt. Something for us to ponder is how this contest between Caesar and Christ, which began near the start of the church, will, according to a futurist interpretation, come round again at the end of history. In the book of Revelation, John presents a major struggle between the forces of heaven and hell, with earth being the battlefield. It's a contest of kingdoms, gods and the devils, with Satan's merging with a political empire that's intent on wiping out believers. Historicists see that as having already been fulfilled in the early centuries of the church, but futurists see it as something yet future, a recapitulation of what's already happened, but on a much wider scale. The earliest phase of official persecution of the church ran from about 64 AD to 100. As I've already mentioned, it was touched off by the fire at Rome. The fire began on July 19th of 64 and lasted for nine days. It destroyed 10 of Rome's 14 districts and created massive suffering for the city's million inhabitants. To divert attention from himself as the likely cause of the fire, the Emperor Nero blamed Christians who were already suspect due to their secretiveness. 
and the report that they claimed that the world would eventually end in fire. If they wanted it to end in fire, well, Nero was happy to oblige and use them as living torches in the gardens near his circus in the Vaticanus district. And as I mentioned earlier, both Peter and Paul were executed during this wave of persecution. The Neronian persecution, as it's come to be called, is notable in that it set a precedent for why the followers of Jesus were to be persecuted. Though the program of persecution didn't really extend beyond Rome, Christians in the city were subject to arrest and executed on the charge that they were arsonists. Fire being dreaded in Rome due to its tendency to spread so rapidly from one house to the next. After the first flurry of arrests and executions in the mid to late 60s, persecution diminished for some years, only to flare up again in 95 during the reign of the Emperor Domitian. But this wave of hardship didn't begin with Christians. It actually began with the Jews, whom at that point Christians were still regarded as a reform movement of. Jews refused to pay a new tax that had been levied to fund construction of Jupiter's temple, on the Capitoline Hill. Domitian decided to use this break with the obstinate Jews to enforce emperor worship. When they refused to take the oath, Christians were arrested for treason. Those arrested lost their property, many were banished, others were executed, especially their leaders. It was at this time that the Apostle John was exiled to the prison island of Patmos. Now, legend says that John had been arrested by zealous officials hopeful to ingratiate themselves with the emperor. They thought to execute John by boiling him in oil, sure to terrorize other would-be Christian leaders into submission. But God miraculously turned the experience into a day at the spa. John came out of the vat with not a hint of distress. And then, fearful of whatever deity had preserved him, John was bundled up and packed off to the one place that he could do the least amount of damage, on a lonely prison island in the middle of the Mediterranean. At least there, his influence would be negated, right? Well, good luck with that plan, you all-wise officials, because it was on Patmos that John received the visions that became the book of Revelation and which provided courage and succor to millions of persecuted believers ever since. It wasn't really till the early 2nd century that Rome established a policy for dealing with Christians. And as I mentioned earlier, a lawyer named Pliny, known to history as the Younger, because his famous uncle was known as Pliny, can you guess? Yep, the Elder. That uncle was a famous author and philosopher. The younger Pliny was a governor in northern Asia Minor from 111 to 113. It seems that something of a revival must have taken place during his term as governor because there was a massive defection from paganism swelling the ranks of the Christians. Pliny was of a mind that to be a good Roman meant to hold that civic virtue that we looked at last time, pietas. That meant adhering to the paganism that was still an official part of the Roman cultus. So, many people forsaking the old gods was surely bad for the empire. Pliny gave anyone accused of or who claimed to be a Christian three chances to recant, each time with increasing threats of punishment if they refused, and if they resisted recantation after three warnings... Well, they were executed. But Pliny was unsure of this treatment, accurately reflecting the wishes of the one to whom he owed his office as governor, the Emperor Trajan. And so he wrote the emperor asking for advice. 
Uh, Trojan responded that Pliny wasn't to make it a policy to go on a search-and-destroy mission for Jesus' followers, but if and when they happened to be brought to him, having been convicted of being Christians, they were to be punished, some by torture to encourage recantation, but the obstinate were to be executed. Trajan added that anonymous charges were not to be entertained. The accuser had to face the accused. This was the first real evidence that we have of an official policy regarding Christians. It wasn't long until officials across the empire used Trajan's guidelines in dealing with the believers. Many were martyred, including Ignatius, the Bishop of Antioch, who in 115 was thrown to beasts in the arena at Rome. Trajan's successor Hadrian generally continued Trajan's policy from 117 to 138. Now, I say generally because Hadrian didn't send out letters telling local officials to stay on task in regard to the Christians. Some governors hated the new sect and used their official cover to persecute them. But most governors simply didn't care. Christians weren't causing any trouble, so why kick a hornet's nest? They left the believers alone. But if suddenly there was a leanness in the ranks of fighters for the arena, well, they could always crank up another round of persecution, snag some Christians as fodder for the arena. And besides, the church was getting pretty big in some places. It's time to trim the hedge. Occasionally at heathen festivals, the mob would drink too much and then want some entertainment, and so they'd demand the blood of the Christians. This became so common that Hadrian published an edict against just such riots. Christians couldn't just be roused by the mob out of their homes or meeting places and carried off to some temple or arena where their heads were used to crack rocks. No, Christians were to be given the justice of the courts. They could be executed for being Christians, but only after being properly charged and tried. During Hadrian's reign, this policy saw the ranks of Christians grow, their wealth improve, their scholarship advance, and their influence spread. From 139 to 161, the emperor Antoninus Pius appears to have personally favored Jesus' followers, but officially, he continued the precedent of imperial policy. What that means is, little direction was coming from Rome about how Christians were to be handled. Persecution at this time was sporadic, regional, and temporary. It might flare up for a few months with the mobs rioting and demanding Christians' blood, then several years would go by without nary a whisper of threat. A student of the Apostle John, Polycarp, who had become the Bishop of Smyrna, was martyred in this way. When a mob rioted, and demanded some Christians pay for their defiance of the old ways and gods. Let's call this period the time of provincial persecution. And we'll end this episode here and pick it up at this point next time as we continue to track persecution in the first centuries. Yeah.